Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In the talk, The Red Indian, Savage or Savaged, Alan Bridgman describes how the Native Americans were systematically persecuted and driven from their land because of the greed of the white settlers in the 19th century. I've entitled this address The Red Indian because ignorant as I am, that's what I've always called American Indians. But uh, as you've heard, they are properly known as the Native American Indians. We are all aware of the reputation of the Red Indian, portrayed as it has been by countless Hollywood films and early TV programmes from the 1920s onwards. I think it fair to say that they all suggested that the Red Indian was a form of savage, uneducated, unsophisticated, greedy, and often intoxicated though only after the white man introduced him to liquor. Of course, that view reflects the truth of the observation that history is written by the victors. Though I had never queried it, I had no grounds to suggest that the view was incorrect until I took time to read a book published in 1971 and written by D. Brown, a Red Indian descendant. Bury my heart at wounded knee. She had taken the trouble to research the many records available in the USA as to the takeover of the continent of America by the white man and bring out the view of the original inhabitants, the tribes of the natives of North America. As with much of human experience, the actual facts of the matter often differ from the reported facts of the matter, as recorded by those who won the argument. I had had this book in my library for some 20 years before I found time to actually read it. And the experience has proved yet again that much truth can be found in books, though not in every book. But this book I found most credible. The story began with the arrival in 1492 of Christopher Columbus, the adventurer hoping to find the way to India. He arrived at the island of San Salvador in the Bahamas, some 400 miles east of North America. This was the home of a tribe known as the Tainos. These natives received the white man peacefully and presented gifts to them, as was their custom. Columbus was most impressed and reported to the King of Spain, so peaceable are these people that I swear to your majesties, there is not in the world a better nation. But he also added, these people should be made to work and do all that is necessary to adopt our ways. So you may note that the European Columbus assumed that he and his ilk already knew the secrets of life on earth. Perhaps he assumed that he knew of the Pope and therefore all that could be learned by mankind. And you may conclude that modern Europeans share a similar view. This may also strengthen your suspicion that mankind learns nothing from history. It certainly strengthens mine. 
News of the discovery of a new land inhabited by simple peoples soon spread, and hordes of European fortune hunters subsequently arrived and did that which comes naturally to the unsupervised humanoid. They took what they wanted and killed anyone who resisted. It is estimated that up to 100,000 natives died as a direct result of the arrival of the white man during the next century. In 1607, the actual continent of North America was reached by the white man in the shape of the Mayflower emigrants from Plymouth, who arrived on the coast of Virginia. Naturally, they behaved as all decorous Englishmen should, and deliberately crowned the head of the chief of the Red Indian tribe who inhabited the area, one Wahunso Nakuk of the Powhatans. Then they gave him a contract to supply them with food, and immigrant John Rolfe married his daughter Pocahontas. Pocahontas and her dad were quite happy with this arrangement, even though they did not convince the rest of the tribe. Once the chief had died, the rest of the tribe fell out with the English immigrants and revolted, intending to drive the white man from their country. This noble cause was frustrated by the simple fact that the white man had firearms and the Red Indians did not. The Powhatan population was reduced from 8,000 to 1,000, and the white man stayed. This tended to form the pattern of forthcoming population development. The Dutch white man appeared in America on Manhattan Island in a, around 1620 and bought the whole island from the natives for the sum of 60 guilders worth of fishhooks and glass beads. This was another example of the white man's real estate planning. In 1641, the Dutch chief sent soldiers to Staten Island to punish the town natives for offences which had actually been committed by white settlers. The soldiers killed four natives who retaliated by killing four Dutchmen. The Dutch big white chief ordered the massacre of two whole Raritan villages during the night when all natives would be sleeping. The Dutch soldiers bayoneted all men, women and children found, hacked the bodies to pieces and levelled the villages by fire. This appeared to set the popular pattern for what was known as the emancipation of the native Indians. In 1829, President Andrew Jackson was elected. He was a lawyer and former general of the US Army. The Red Indians knew him as Sharp Knife as a result of his army service. Soldiers under his command had slain thousands of southern Indian tribes, such as the Cherokees, Choctaws, and Creeks. In his first message to Congress, he recommended that all Red Indians be moved westward beyond Mississippi River to land which, I quote, was to be guaranteed to the Indian tribes as long as they shall occupy it. That was 1829. On May the 28th, 1830, this proposal became law. Two years later, Jackson appointed as a commissioner of Indian affairs with the objective of ensuring this new law was enforced. But yet another wave of white settlers had arrived and swept westward to the Indian border. So that border was moved from the Mississippi River to the 95th Meridian, i.e. even further to the west. Military forts were established along the river in order to enforce the law. By 1837, gold had been discovered in the Appalachian Mountains, so the army was ordered to round up all the Cherokees and march them west, deeper into Indian territory. 
One in four of the Indians on that march died en route, which caused the Indians to call the march the Trail of Tears. The US government went to war with Mexico in the 1840s, and when they won it, they took control of the areas of Texas and California, both states within the Indian reservation lands. In order to justify this breach of US law, the policymakers in Washington invented the policy of Manifest Destiny, a fine name, and this ordained that the European immigrants to America and their descendants were ordained by destiny to own and rule all of America. The Red Indian tribes were apparently not consulted. You may be impressed by this example of practical politics, or you may view it, as do I, as an example of utterly selfish theft on an industrial scale. But we must pause to remember that history is written by the winners in any dispute, and the Red Indian was not the winner. But records were nonetheless kept of the history of the native Red Indians, and it's on the basis of those records that this talk is prepared. Let me start with the example of Chief Little Crow of the Santee Sioux. His tribe occupied the lands to the west of the once permanent Indian frontier, as designated by Congress. These lands had been occupied by some 150,000 white settlers in the 10 years preceding the US Civil War. And by 1862, farm production was low. In July of 1862, 7,000 Santee Indians gathered at the Indian Agency on Yellow Medicine River in order to collect the annuities promised by the US government in previous treaties. Unfortunately, it seems that the US government had spent all available funds on fighting the Civil War and had failed to supply monies to the Indian agents responsible for supplying food to the Indians. In the absence of such payment, the Indian agent, one Thomas Galbraith, refused to supply stocks of food from the agency warehouse to the Indians. When Little Crow demanded that food be supplied since the people were starving, Galbraith turned to the white Indian traders present and asked their opinion. One of them, one Andrew Myrick, replied, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. The Sioux heard this and remembered these words, and within weeks, trouble arose in the region. Little Crow ordered an attack on the agency warehouse, which resulted in the death of Andrew Myrick. His body was found outside the agency warehouse, his mouth stuffed with grass. Black Cattle of the Southern Cheyenne said in 1864, I once thought I was the only man that persevered to be the friend of the white man. But since they have come and cleaned out our lodges, horses and everything else, it is hard for me to believe the white man anymore. That was 1864. In 1851, a large government organized conference took place at Fort Laramie with representatives of several Indian tribes including the Cheyenne, the Sioux, and the Crow tribe. A treaty was signed which permitted the Indians to retain ownership of the land, but would permit white settlers to enter the land. Settlers arrived in their thousands and settled in small villages, and then small towns, and founded a big village which they called Denver City. An Arapaho chief named Little Raven visited Denver and told the white gold diggers that he hoped they would take away all the gold they found and move on. Of course, 
They did take all the gold they found, but they did not move on. A new conference was arranged some 10 years later at Fort Wise in Arkansas. Several Indian chiefs who attended noted that what was written in this treaty bore no resemblance to what they agreed should be in the treaty. But then it was written by the white man. Subsequent to that treaty, a further conference was arranged between the army, led by a major Winkoop, and the local Cheyennes. The major ordered two Cheyenne captives to lead his troops to their camp, and he told them that if they gave trouble, he would kill them. Cheyenne One-Eye replied, the Cheyenne do not break their word. If they should do so, I would not care to live longer. Winkoop subsequently recorded that his conversations with the two Cheyennes on this march entirely changed his opinion of Indians. Major Winkoop said, I felt myself in the presence of superior beings, and these were representatives of a race that I heretofore looked upon without exception as being cruel, treacherous, and bloodthirsty, without feeling or affection for friend or kindred. So that was a complete reversal of Major Winkoop's opinion of the Red Indian. But he did appear to be in a minority of one at that time. In 1862, two Cheyenne chiefs, Black Kettle and Lean Bear, had visited President Abraham Lincoln in Washington. He gave them medals to wear, their chests, and a large US flag, which Black Kettle displayed above his teepee. In May 1863, they heard reports of troubles between soldiers and Cheyenne. Lean Bear rode out from his camp and saw four troops of cavalry approaching, accompanied by two cannon. He instructed his braves to wait while he went forward to show the soldiers his letters from President Lincoln. As Lean Bear approached within 20 yards of the troops, who had formed a defensive line, an officer called out and the troops opened fire killing Lean Bear and one other. The troops then retreated, pursued by the remaining Indians. Of such small and unnecessary actions, judged in retrospect, can arise such monumental reactions. The officer in command of the troops, one Colonel Chivington, had issued orders to his men to kill Cheyenne whenever and wherever found. In November of 1863, Major Winkoop was replaced by Major Scott Anthony, who took over command at Fort Lyon and responsibility for the Cheyennes camped at Sand Creek. One of his first orders to the Indians was to surrender their weapons to the fort. They surrendered three rifles, a pistol and 60 bows and arrows. A few days later, a group of Indians approached the fort to trade hides. Major Anthony ordered his troops to fire on them and laughed when they ran away. He stated, they have annoyed me enough and that's the only way to get rid of them, shoot at them. This comment was reported eventually to the US Congress and it's recorded in its 39th Senate executive document, though little else would appear to have resulted from that entry in the document. In November, 1863, Major Anthony received reinforcements of 600 men under the command of a Colonel Chivington. They were of a Colorado regiment formed by the state governor Evans for the sole purpose of fighting Indians. The Colonel and Major Anthony spoke enthusiastically of collecting scalps and wading gore. Such vivid imagination. 
A captain and two lieutenants pointed out that an attack on the Indians would contravene the arrangements made in Washington. But Colonel Chivington replied, I have come to kill Indians. On November the 28th, 1864, 700 troops moved out of the fort towards the Indian camp at Sand Creek with four howitzers. The Indians had posted no guard since they believed they were under the protection of the US cavalry. As the sound of approaching horses woke the Indians at dawn, many of them ran to the tent of Chief Black Kevin. He told them all to stand peacefully under the Stars and Stripes flag he displayed above his teepee, remembering that he had been given it as a symbol of allegiance between Washington and the Red Indians. Among the party of soldiers approaching was Robert Bent, a half-breed scout who rode alongside Colonel Childington. He stated... I saw the American flag waving and heard Black Kettle tell the Indians to stand around the flag. I also saw a white flag raised. The troops slaughtered all the women and children they could reach and mutilated the bodies in horrific manner. 105 women and children and 28 men were dead. Although Colonel Chivington claimed to have killed four to 500 warriors for the loss of only nine troopers, as a direct result of this massacre, the Red Indian tribes united to fight war against the white man. U.S. government officials called for an inquiry into the actions of Colonel Chippington, having realised that they now faced an outbreak of full-scale warfare with the native Red Indians. They sent an emissary to the new Cheyenne chief, Leg in the Water, who stated after a full meeting of his council, What do we want to live for? The white man has taken our country killed all of our game, was not satisfied with that, but killed our wives and children. Now, no peace. We loved the whites until we found out they lied to us and robbed us of what we had. We have raised the battle axe until death. Seems a sharp change of attitude between the Red Indians and the white man. In January 1865, the alliance of Sioux, Arapaho and Cheyenne tribes commenced attacks along the South Platte River. They burned down the town of Julesburg, scalped the white men they killed, destroyed miles of telegraph wires and generally caused disruption. By the summer, the US government sent emissaries to the Indians seeking a conference. It had been realised that Denver City was built on land owned by the Cheyenne and Arapaho, as recognised in previous treaties and the US government wanted to clear the land and Indian rights to it, to permit white settlers to occupy it, and to permit the development of stagecoach routes and railway lines, which were already planned. By October 1865, a new treaty had been prepared, under which the Southern Cheyenne and Arapahoes agreed to forsake the rights to the area now known as Colorado. And so the development and exploitation of the land, now known as the United States, continued. By August 1865, the Sioux, Cheyenne and Arapaho were encamped between the Bighorn in the west and the Black Hills in the east. They were sure no white man would infringe on these lands, so were sceptical of reports of soldiers approaching them from four directions. But they soon realised that this was indeed so, and that the soldiers were under the command of one General Patrick Connor. He was known to them as the general who two years earlier had surrounded a camp of the Paiutes on Bear River and butchered 270 of them. 
for this act, he had been praised by the white men as a defender from the red foe. In July 1865, Connor announced that Indians in this region should be hunted like wolves and that his troops should kill all male Indians over the age of 12. As troops moved about the region, there were several Indian attacks on them, but all were hampered, as the Indians realized, by their lack of modern repeating rifles, not to mention howitzers. But from every encounter, the Indians learned from the superior tactics of the white soldiers. Elsewhere on the planet at this time, in Washington, the civil rights law was passed on April the 1st, 1866, giving full rights as a citizen to all Americans, but not to Red Indian. On March the 30th, 1867, the US government purchased from Russia the state of Alaska for the sum of $7,200,000. In November that year, the US president was impeached for high crimes. In Europe, Johann Strauss composed the Blue Danube, so human life was progressing as normal. On June the 13th, 1865, a conference commenced at Fort Laramie between Commissioner Taylor and the chiefs of the Oglalas and Cheyenne and Brules. It became clear that the US government intended to create a line of military forts along the Baysman Road in order to police the anticipated mass travel to Montana. Standing out of the Brule tribe pointed out to Colonel Carrington that this would antagonize the Sioux and that they would fight. This was an accurate assessment. And of course, it did not change the view of the government in Washington. By December of 1865, the Indians had prepared a masterly ambush for the troops from Fort Laramie. A small troop of Indians, about 10 of them, fired on a column of infantry and cavalry coming out of the fort. The troop pursued the Indians as they knew they would. The Indians led the troops to a point north of Pino Creek, where the massed Indian tribes sprang from concealment and attacked. They killed all 100 of the troops, and the battle became known as the Fetterman Massacre to the whites, but the Battle of the Hundred Slain to the Indians. Colonel Carrington was appalled to find that the bodies of the dead had been mutilated by the Indians in a most savage manner. Apparently, he did not realize that the mutilations carried out were the same as those inflicted on Indian victims of the Sand Creek Massacre two years previously. It is said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, though not necessarily the most becoming. In 1868, the 14th Amendment to the American Constitution was passed by the Senate, giving equal rights to all American citizens, except Red Indians. This followed yet another meeting between Indians and U.S. Army chiefs in 1867. The Army chiefs demanded that Roman Nose of the Cheyenne surrender his people to the U.S. Army. Roman Nose rode away, taking his tribe with him, but leaving his tribal camp intact. General Hancock ordered his troops to search the abandoned camp and list everything found. This amounted to 251 teepees, 962 buffalo robes, and the 426 saddles, as well as the cooking gear of each family. Having compiled this list, the soldiers burnt everything, and the Cheyennes noted this action and never forgot it. April 1871. At that time, a veteran Indian fighter named William Uri 
led a group of mercenaries to a camp of unarmed Aravel Apaches. They attacked without warning, as is favored by scurrilous white men, and killed a total of 144 Apaches, mostly women. The local US Army commander at Camp Grant was a Lieutenant Whitman. On hearing of the attack, he rode out to the camp and viewed the desecration that had taken place, which included savage rape and murder. Lieutenant Whitman promised fellow Apaches that he would seek out the killers, and he did so. Always nice to find an official who actually does what he said he will do. The leading offenders were brought to trial, and they claimed that they had attacked the camp of known Apache raiders. Several local white witnesses gave clear evidence that the Apache camp was inhabited only by peaceful Indians. The trial before a jury lasted five days. The verdict was announced after 19 minutes. All persons charged were acquitted, despite the evidence. I note this as a clear indication of the reliability of a jury trial and suggests that the level of reliability has not changed since 1871 in the USA or anywhere else. In June 1876, a large crowd of various Indian tribes had camped together near the Little Bighorn River in preparation for the hunting of antelope. They numbered some 10,000 Indians. Their camp was suddenly attacked by a cavalry unit led by a Colonel Reno. This attack was repulsed and the troops retreated, permitting all the Indians to regroup and face another cavalry unit led by General George Custer. And we've all heard of General Custer who appears to remain a hero to the Americans. The Indians attacked Custard's men from three sides and destroyed the entire column. No mercy was given. The net result of this defeat was that the US government made a new law which required the Indians to forsake the Powder River and Black Hills, despite the provisions of the Treaty of 1868, which would have prevented this. So the Indian nations were defeated not in battle, but in the courtroom where the politicians operated in conjunction with lawyers. Democracy has apparently not progressed far to date. In 1877, the famed Indian chief Crazy Horse, who had distinguished himself in battle against the white man, ordered his tribe to go north while he went to the Spotted Tail Agency to seek refuge with his old friend Touch the Clouds. There he was arrested and escorted to Fort Robinson. On arrival there, he was told it was too late to see the officer in command and he was taken to a prison shack. He saw the bars on the windows and the chained Indians within and wrenched away from his escort, but was immediately bayoneted in the stomach by a private William Gentles. He died that night, age 35. His body was surrendered to his parents, who placed it on a platform where it was attended by hundreds of Indian mourners. During the autumn, the Sioux were ordered to march northeast to a reservation on the Missouri River, which the Indians considered barren land. Many of them slipped away from the column, intending to join Sitting Bull in the north. This included the family of Crazy Horse. They buried his remains in secret at a place called Wounded Knee, hence the title of the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. In August 1877, the Cheyenne tribe arrived at Fort Reno to join the reservation. They totaled 937 individuals. 
The Sun and Cheyenne, who were already present on the reservation, invited the newcomers to a welcoming feast in accordance with Indian custom. The only food available for the feast was a watery soup. The foodstuffs promised by the US government never arrived in full quantity. I find it interesting to note that charity dispensed from on high tends always to arrive on site in much reduced form and quantity. The cavalry officers responsible for maintaining order on the reservation made report to the US government Secretary of the Interior, one Carl Schultz, whose responsibility it was to ensure that the terms of the Indian peace treaties were met. But Carl Schultz complained that such details do not in the nature of things come to the notice of the Secretary. It is the business of the Indian office. Thus the fairly typical response of the bureaucrat who seeks position but eschews responsibility for error, another human habit which remains popular today. In 1879, General Crook was ordered by Secretary Schultz to remove the Ponca tribe to its delegated reservation. The Ponkas did not wish to go, and Crook was moved by their plight. So there is evidence of officials of the state viewing the situation in hand and deciding to disagree with the wishes of the state. I sympathize entirely with this general. General Crook quietly notified the editor of an Omaha newspaper of the situation of the Ponkas. Their story was then publicized and it gained support from clear thinking white men who issued civil law proceedings reported as standing bare the Crook. That's the name of the local general, not character assessment. General Cook said that it's too often the case that border newspapers disseminate all sorts of exaggerations and falsehoods about the Indians, while the Indian side of the case is rarely heard. Then when the outbreak does go public, attention is turned to the Indians. Their crimes and atrocities are alone condemned, while the persons whose injustice has driven them to this course escape scot-free and are the loudest in their denunciations. No one knows this fact better than the Indian. Therefore, he is excusable in seeing no justice in a government which only punishes him while it allows the white man to plunder him as he pleases. Now there's an American officer speaking over a hundred years ago, and in my view, getting the situation absolutely correct. Now, General Crook organized a civil court hearing on behalf of the Indians. Judge Dundee ruled, I have never been called upon to hear or decide a case that appealed so strongly to my sympathy. The Ponkas are among the most peaceable and friendly of all the Indian tribes. If they could be removed to the Indian territory by force and kept there in the same way, I see no reason why they might not be taken and kept by force in the penitentiary. I cannot think that any such arbitrary authority exists in this country. That decision was greeted with tumultuous acclaim in the courtroom, and General Crook, who had basically organised it, was the first to congratulate Standing Bear. So there's a decision in court in favour of the Red Indians. And if you're an optimist, you would assume that that decision would stand. But as a result of this, the US government awarded the Ponkers some hundreds of acres of land near Brara River in Nebraska. This so pleased the remaining Ponkers, a, a different tribal group, that they too sought to go there. But that severely irritated what was known as the Indian ring of dealers and bureaucrats who would lose all their authority and profits. When the brother of Standing Bear, Big Snake, 
Big Snake was a giant of a man, and he sought to move and join his brother. But the US government decreed that the recent civil court case applied only to the applicant Standing Bear and his family. Big Snake was invited to the office of the agency in October 1879, where he was offered a seat and then surrounded by eight armed soldiers. He refused to be arrested since he said that he had done nothing wrong. Several attempts to handcuff him failed, and then he was shot dead. The Interior Department stated that Big Snake had been shot accidentally, but pressure from the press caused a formal inquiry to be held in Congress. No result of this inquiry ever reached the light of day. The Ponkers learned the lesson that the law of the white man did not apply to the Red Indian. In the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, there lived the tribe known as the Utes. In 1863, they had accepted $10,000 for mineral rights throughout their territory. But five years later, the miners wanted more of their land and disputes and fights broke out. By 1879, white men were demanding the removal of surviving Indians. And in 1880, the Utes were escorted to Utah, 350 miles away from Colorado. One Arvila Mika, the white widow of an Indian agent, testified in secret hearings that she had been forced to have sex with Ute Chief Douglas. He was not charged or tried since this would have embarrassed the white complainant. But as a mere Red Indian, Chief Douglas was committed to the state penitentiary. Now one can only hope that the legal process has improved since then, though I retain my doubts. By June, 1880, the population of the USA was recorded as 50,155,783. On April the 3rd, 1882, Jesse James was shot dead. On November the 3rd, 1883, the US Supreme Court decided that the Red Indian was an alien and therefore a dependent. On October the 28th, 1886, the Statue of Liberty was erected. How ironic was that from the viewpoint of the native inhabitants? In September 1882, General George Crook took command of the army in Arizona. He was experienced in fighting Indians and had learned much about them. He was quoted as saying that the Indian was always blamed for fighting the white man, always without reference to the offences of the white man which caused the fight. He marched into Mexico in order to meet with Geronimo. And General Cook told Geronimo that he was not afraid of the Indians, so he would not disarm them. Geronimo agreed that his tribe of Apaches would return to Arizona and did so. And they lived there peacefully until May 1885, when Geronimo was informed of a plot to imprison him and he fled south to Mexico. In March 1886, General Cook again met with him he explained that Geronimo would have to spend two years in detention in Florida, as required by the US government in Washington, but he would then be free to return to his homelands. Geronimo agreed, and General Crook returned to his base and telegraphed his plans to Washington. The reply from Washington was unexpected by Crook, the man on the front line, and it said simply, cannot assent to the surrender of the hostiles on these terms. General Crook was severely reprimanded by the War Department and he resigned. He was replaced by General Miles in 1884, who put 5,000 troops 
one third of the total US army on campaign to defeat the army of Geronimo, which at the time consisted of 24 warriors. So 5,000 versus 24, who could win? The Mexican army was searching for Geronimo on the south of the border as well. Geronimo finally surrendered to an army lieutenant he trusted and was sent to Florida. He eventually ended up at Fort Sill in Wichita, where he died, still technically a prisoner of war in 1909. The last surviving fighting chief was Sitting Bull, leader of the Sioux. He and his tribe had gone north into Canada and he claimed the protection of the Great Mother, known to us as Queen Victoria. The Canadian Parliament was vaguely uncomfortable with this and the US government wished to entice them back to the Sioux Reservation in America. An envoy was sent to invite them back. Sitting Bull rejected the invitation outright. He stayed in Canada for four years, despite the reservations of the Canadians, who viewed him, of course, as a US citizen, and therefore preferably a US problem. Small groups from his tribe returned to the US, and finally in July 1881, Sitting Bull surrendered himself at Fort Bullford. There, the US abandoned its promise to pardon him and held him as a prisoner of war at Fort Randall. He was eventually released to the main reservation. There, an inquiry commenced led by Senator Henry Dawes in August 1883. Senator Dawes invited all the local chiefs to speak to him, but he ignored Sitting Bull, who was sat patiently listening. Finally, Dawes asked if anyone else wanted to speak. Sitting Bull rose and asked whether Dawes knew who he was. Dawes said, yes, I know who you are, but he claimed he treated all Indians as of the same rank and would listen to whatever was said. Sitting Bull replied, you have conducted yourselves like men who have been drinking whiskey, and I came here to give you advice. He then raised his hand, and every Indian present left the room with him. The government representatives were horrified by the clear demonstration that Sitting Bull was revered by all the Indians present, and his words might destroy the government's intention to change the Red Indians into a white man following white man's customs. In September 1883, Sitting Bull was invited to speak at the ceremony of the completion of the Northern Pacific Railroad. He was the outstanding Indian chief whose presence would add the greatest possible benefit to the ceremony. That's in the view of the US government, of course. And the much increased access of the white man to the West. An army officer fluent in Sioux helped prepare a speech of welcome to be given by Sitting Bull. On the day, Sitting Bull spoke as he felt instead of following the prepared script. And he said to the assembled crowd, I hate all the white people. You are thieves and liars. You have taken away our land and made us outcasts. He paused occasionally for applause, which was freely given. The army translator then had to translate the speech, which he did as innocently as possible. The audience was delighted. That brings to mind the saying attributed to Abraham Lincoln. You can fool all the people some of the time. And some of the people all the time. You just can't fool all the people all the time. Subsequently, in 1885, Sitting Bull was invited to join the cast of Buffalo Bill Cody's touring Wild West Roadshow. They got on well together, and Sitting Bull was able to ignore the frequent shouts from the audiences of Killer of Costa, 
1887, he declined the offer to tour Europe with a show, saying that he must stay to fight yet more government attempts to steal Indian lands. In October 1890, Sitting Bull was informed of the emergence of the Palut Messiah, an Indian named Wavoka. I had never heard of Wavoka, but this man preached to all who would listen, you must not hurt anybody or do harm to anyone. You must not fight. Do right always. That sounds remarkably like the generally accepted Christian philosophy. He taught them to dance the ghost dance, and this dance spread throughout the Indian nations. One would think that to observe various Indian tribes dancing the ghost dance and following the philosophy preached by Wavoka would be very pleasing to spectators. But it greatly alarmed Indian agent McLaughlin, and he decided it was all the fault of Sitting Bull. Orders were given for the arrest of Sitting Bull. On December the 15th, 1890, 43 Indian police surrounded the log cabin of Sitting Bull. He was awoken and made no attempt to resist arrest, but a small crowd of ghost dancers gathered outside the cabin, outnumbering the police by four to one. Dancer Catch the Bear forbade the arrest of Sitting Bull and drew a rifle from beneath his blanket and shot arresting officer Bullhead, who fell and aimed a shot at Catch the Deer, but hit Sitting Bull instead. A second shot hit Sitting Bull in the head, and he was dead. The final massacre of Red Indians occurred at Wounded Knee Creek a few days later. The U.S. Army had been ordered to disarm the surviving tribe of Sioux, but the operation ended with the slaughter of some 300 of the tribe of 350 men, women and children. Thus, the legend continued of the innocent white man overcoming the savage Red Indians whose land they had occupied. But I do ask you to remember that history is written primarily by the winners. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.